0: The show on your Monday. Good to be with you, Matt and Patrick. It's the Matt McNeil show. I'm going to I'm going to be geeky. I mean, this is going to be geeky because I'm a geek and I'm a fan. Uh, uh, Dara Moskowitz grumdahl is one of the most awarded food writers in the country. She came to Minnesota for college, became a local restaurant wine and drink critic in 1997. Now with Minneapolis Saint Paul Magazine, Dara is the uh, Dara is the other half of our star food and dining team, along with Stephanie March. Uh Dara has been nominated for her food and wine writing 13 times for a James Beard Awards. Has won 5 times. I did get an AARP card this year. So I guess it's equal. Yeah there is. She's kind enough to join us to talk about an exceptional article she has written. What is Northern Food? Dara, thank you very much. I appreciate the time.
1: Thank you for having me and it is 15 times. 15 times.
0: They have not. Yeah. Up, they did not update your bio on MSP. Uh, I, MSP I, I for one, instead
1: of just scooping one off the, uh, <laughs> off the website.
0: <laughs> well, congratulations on that. Wait, You are a fantastic writer, no, and thank you. And you and I could talk food, I and mean, we'll, we're going to talk food for a, quite a bit here. But let's start with this article because you stumbled across something. Which I I find to be fascinating because there's always this. There's Southern food, and and we, you know, you go down to the South and barbecue, and 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 you know jambalaya, and 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 you know biscuits and gravy, and you know the 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 seafood that you can kind of get. Every place, a lot of places have a distinctive kind of food, and North, the North really, it has some things which I think are kind of iconic for the area. But it doesn't necessarily have this. So you asked, what is northern food? And then you kind of stumbled upon something, which I think is a brilliant observation of what makes up northern cuisine.
1: Yes, I did. And, you know, I should backtrack and say, not only uh, have I been thinking about, you know, what is southern food? What is northern food? I have been working on this since literally maybe 1997 sort of um, so I grew up in New York City. Mm-hmm. I came out to Minnesota. Now I've been here an awfully long time. And the whole time, uh, people are very, uh, you know, self-deprecating. How many times have you heard the whole, like, ketchup is a spice? Uh, <laughs> you know, or, <laughs> or they're very oblivious. Like, how many times have you kind of heard that, like, mashed potatoes or pie like that's not anything that's special or you know wild rice soup is just something that's just kind of like here like nobody cares but not only is southern food have this um you know very distinct ingredients and you know things that make it southern food thinking about pecans thinking about crawdads um and not only is it that but like identity of these cities is inextricable with their food. So that's mm. always just been a mystery. You know, you go to Memphis, you get barbecue. I can mm. just go through, you know, what do you get when you go to New Orleans? I bet you know the exact right things just like everybody does. So I'll p- put it to you. What do you go when you get to New Orleans?
0: Uh, when I get to New Orleans, I'll go on down there and I will I will get some gumbo. I usually like a good po' boy. And, uh, uh, you you know, I like some of the soups that you can get down there, especially the seafood soups, because they're just, you know, they're generally fresh and they're made with that very kind of that French lineage, you know, that that they put into that uh, that are delicious. I love going to the Southeastern or to the South Carolina where the Gullah community is at and the oysters are there and the barbecue.
1: And also what's there is rice. Why is there rice? Because it grows in, you know, kind of swampy. Coastal areas—that's what rice likes. Just like our wild rice likes to live in streams and lakes, the rice that you get in Jambalaya likes to live in water. Also, that's what it does.
0: Well, can, it, it is interesting you bring this up because I think one of the things when I think about Southern food, I, I was in Savannah, and and one of the things you go when you go to the, the 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 mansions that are still there. One of the things that you see is the mentality there. Now, granted, Savannah is a kind of is a little like New Orleans; it's its own unique little thing where they were they, the 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 white you know, powerful elite, were trying to eat like Europeans. The cultural food that exploded out of the South came I'll, from... I'll
1: fight you on that one, but... What's keep that? Going. I would fight you on that, but keep going. Well,
0: because we were going there and they were always trying to... There was there was an attempt to try to make it, especially with Savannah and the way they tried to design it as, you know, European style. But I, I think
1: that... What what, are you, what what part of Europe...
0: Uh, I think they were kind of trying to do a little more like the French, kind of trying to show it was kind of more established. You've been to to Savannah, so you see all the parks and the squares and the design of the city. And when you've gone to – we've gone to some of the mansions there and they talk about how when they did these, especially the parties – that the mentality was to show that we can do just as ornate feast as anyone can, a little bit of inferiority complex to to the north for sure, especially New York City, but as well, it seemed like they they were trying to, especially when they were intert- entertaining, you know, European dignitaries. They were trying to do French th- or European style meals down there. Uh, that's what, at least in the tours that we were taking there, I mean, and you know, that's what they were telling us that they were that was kind of the real temple. The the, the wealthy white were t- basically doing a lot to try to imitate European style there as you know, when you look at collard greens and barbecue and the things like this, it was coming from a lot of that came from the the the, the, the culture of the working class, the slave culture as well, that, that the, the the foods that originated from them, which in a lot of places have become the foods a lot of areas are known for.
1: Right, because that's who was doing the cooking and the planting and the gardening and everything else. So I, I, you know, I don't know what they were telling you in a plantation house in Savannah, um, but in that kind of slave culture um, of Savannah, you know, they were basically navigating two populations. So that would have been the Native American population, the people that knew how to get sassafras out of the swamps, the people that knew how to... Uh, grow corn which of course is a nor- northern Native American you know thing like from the Aztecs the Mayas up until Ontario this was the land of corn so you're thinking about cornbread that's a you know Native American food there's no cornbread happening in France no matter what they have to say in uh, in a plantation home in uh, in Georgia and then um, you know so the other population that you're looking at of course are enslaved Africans who brought over, a whole bunch of foods with them, you know, tucked into their hair and, and any other way that they could preserve their culture and, and provide for themselves and their children in this uh, land that they were being shanghaied and and uh, driven across the sea against their will towards. So that's okra, that's, uh, you know, pumpkins, that's, you know, all of the things that we, you know, you're thinking about something, a dish like succotash, a dish mm-hmm. like uh, calabash, like those things are succotash is a is a native american african-american hybrid food and if uh you know they had airs of being french like i don't even know what to say but you know well there, the white the white french population
0: theory. the white population not necessarily the african-american population but no i think that there is you know, especially
1: well, was doing the cooking you know, you know so if a... you look at a, at a city like new orleans That was an actual place that was owned by Napoleon Bonaparte Mm -hmm. up until the, you know, the the Louisiana Purchase. So a lot of French culture was in cities like Louisiana. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, and certainly the the oh, Thomas Jefferson's of the world you know very attached to France going back and forth and you know he had a elaborate wine cellar that he was constantly stocking it was a big preoccupation of his so there were connections of France but you know those things that we think of as southern food i don't think had really anything to do with France at all
0: well no and i and i agree with you i i was not saying that as a that's where it came from I was saying that 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 was kind of the the airs that the white culture was putting on, but the foods that are known for the Southern culture – did not come from that. Came from something else, and 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 so forgive me if that came across wrong. I, I I'm you and I are saying the same exact thing. I think at this point.
1: Oh, okay, great. It's a, it's uh, yeah, so <laughs> southern food is like a very distinct thing, and as long as I've been in Minnesota and writing about food, you know, which has been this whole time, there's a kind of a hole where northern food would be a kind of identity. A, a lack of identity, certainly a lack of pride, but then also just a, a lack of agreement. Like we can say, you know, you go south and you have gumbo, you have jambalaya, you have po'boys. You just said all the things like, you know what they are. Everybody knows what they are. But we don't have that agreement with northern food. Um, and, you know, and I can a couple of years ago, I did a big story on the beef commercial sandwich. Did you ever read that one?
0: Uh, I, no, I did not.
1: Okay, so the beef commercial sandwich was one of my uh, things that I kind of excavated about northern food. So that is just basically a, a roast beef sandwich with, <laughs> um, well, potato mashed potatoes as the base, sliced roast beef, uh, and then you know gravy, like homemade gravy, up over the top, and it's it's wonderful. And there's a couple places around that still do it, but I, I talked to some old timers, and everybody had the exact same thing to say about it. it was like a beef commercial sandwich was what you ate when you went into town with your harvest or what you ate when you were a traveling salesman and you had one meal that you ate in a day while you were traveling and it's uh it's the kind of thing that was very um i want to say preyed upon by our local wonderful food companies like so they you know, gravy packets, like they just destroyed our gravy culture in a generation. And so nobody really knows how to make gravy very well. And everyone thinks you make it from packets. And that's, you know, one example of a northern food that we used to have, that is kind of vanished. And so then this, this new story, I decided to take another to swig at it and be like, well, what if we were going to define it? You know, it's not going to be The food that only grows within 150 miles of, you know, your house like that's not northern food, because Mm -hmm. if that was the the true, then you then Memphis and New Orleans wouldn't have a southern food culture. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of started just like knocking back to the most obvious thing of all, like, what's the most obvious thing about living here?
0: It's it, it's winter. It is absolutely – it's the changing of the seasons. is the fact that we have very definitive and defined seasons.
1: Yeah. It's mm-hmm. the cold. It's the yeah. snow. Like anytime you go anywhere – everyone knows how this is. You go anywhere. You go to California and people are like – oh, how do you stand it? Why do you live there? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. right? You go to New York and people are like, oh, I couldn't take it. That wouldn't work for me. Um, and it's just, you know, extremely annoying as someone who loves to live. I love the snow. You know, we have a beautiful snowfall. I can't wait to get outside. Uh, my dog and I, like, we love the snow. We love to go walking. In. Love- how many pictures of snow do I have on my camera phone? Probably one million. Um but it's it's like the defining thing about living here. And so I started thinking like, well, what if, what if northern food is the thing that comes from land with serious snow? And then I just started talking to everybody in food about this. And it started to make more and more sense. And it's one of those things where once you kind of figure it out, you're like, adoy, that is the most obvious thing. Like mm-hmm. it's the food that comes from winter. And then I started kind of digging in. And finding that, oh, guess what? Snow, cold, this absolute hard stop to fertile processes that start that, you know, that we all know comes down in October, or maybe early November, someplace like that starts up again, late March. That gap when everything is not decaying is incredibly fertile. Like that's why we have this riot Crazy abundant spring is because there's all of this soil fertility that that ju- gets trapped when it gets mm-hmm. cold. Mm-hmm.
0: It it is an excellent point because as a person whose family's from Minnesota, who's grown up here, who you know they they pick dandelion leaves the second they would come out of the ground in the spring, uh, pick high bush cranberries. Uh, wild rice which was you know it was funny because I remember when I went to someplace else in the country and they said here's wild rice and like that's not wild rice uh, <laughs> I don't know what you're giving me but that's not wild rice uh, to the, to, and as you talk about in your article about apples I mean is there anything greater I think than buying, uh, picking an apple off a tree in Minnesota when it's been naturally chilled with the air and taking a bite out of it it is absolutely delicious it's because the winter sets up all these foods to where it's not just, it, it, it just, they they can't exist elsewhere without Minnesota and the winter that creates it.
1: Yeah, it's something that you kind of know in the back of your mind, but you don't think about what it really, what's the meaning of it? Like, why is there no apples growing in Florida? And, mm-hmm. you know, yet there are a couple of hybrids and stuff, but, you know, it's not meaningfully. Why do all the apples come from Michigan, Seattle, uh, Minnesota? wisconsin the reason is that apples need cold and like the really good apples really need cold mm-hmm. um and then it kind of goes like that with a bunch of stuff like we all know that in sweden and norway they like rye bread like in minnesota rye grows really well well guess what it's not just that rye, winter rye they call it winter rye it needs winter Winter rye grows well here, but winter rye cannot grow in New Orleans. They're Mm. never going to have rye bread the way we have. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just not possible. And then it's like, that is a really delicious food that takes all of this energy and um, abundance from the winter, from the super long days of June. Like, they don't have those long days in New Orleans either. And Mm so you can kind of start putting together... A list of foods that need the winter and are awesome because of the winter. Apples and rye, I think, are perfect examples.
0: And and, and that's one of the things you do is you break down, you talk about a few different foods in this article and how the winter helps them, whether it's rye. And I think you were up for the rye part of the story. It was very northwestern part of the state, right?
1: Oh, yeah. All the way, uh, Halleck, Minnesota, uh, far north. Rockner Rye Whiskey, one of my absolute favorite uh, tipples. Um, yeah, they're practically in North Dakota and they're practically in Canada. And it's perfect rye country.
0: And and the, as well, though, and talk a little bit about cheese, because I thought that was fascinating. How is the winter mold the cheese here in Minnesota?
1: You know, we have a small but mighty cheese uh, scene here. So there's a couple of great ones. There's Redhead Creamery. Uh, Here in Minnesota, there's Shepherd's Way down in Nurstrand, Minnesota. And there's a couple things to think about. It's like uh, the sheep's milk cheeses of Shepherd's Way. Well, it's like, what are sheep doing? Like they're having these gigantic woolly coats. Like why? Why do sheep need gigantic woolly coats? Is it for bikinis? Like is it for (laughs) swimming? Is it for their exciting life uh, poolside? Like no, Uh, sheep need giant woolly coats because they live in cold places, right? They climb up mountains. They do stuff outside where it's cold. And what do you need to do when you're outside where it's cold and you have a baby? You have to give them really rich milk. Like that. Mm -hmm. This intuitively makes sense, right? If I told you like, oh, you're taking your baby camping and you're going to be at the top of the Rockies, you'd be like, whoa, I got to get some high energy foods, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so that's where the milk kind of comes from for our great Minnesota cheeses. These animals that live outdoors, you know, sheep particularly, they make a really concentrated, intense, uh, rich milk. And that's what makes the cheese so great. Um, and the, you know, if they were living, you know, if you took the Shepherd's Way, herd of sheep who i will add like they just live outside all year round they keep the these are farmers that keep the you know the the dairy barn door kind of propped to a lower level so that sheep can come and go it's like a garage door that goes up and down and they keep it you know kind of half propped so that the sheep can just do what they want as like and if it's nice out you know if it's 20 degrees and sunny if it's 10 degrees and sunny the sheep are outside doing their thing they only really come inside if it's raining apparently they don't like the rain but um So those sheep are eating the very abundant stuff that's growing outside, you know, and then they're coming inside. And guess what? The molds that just happen to be floating through the air, just like we have molds floating through the air everywhere, um, the ones that are on the Shepherd's Way farm are what make the Shepherd's Way cheese. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so if you just picked up the Shepherd's Way sheep and you drove them to Tampa Bay, Uh, they wouldn't be making the milk that they make. They wouldn't be eating the the delightful pasture that they eat. And they wouldn't be making the cheese that they make. And so it's like, that's a food that needs all the snow that we have, all of the liquid that, you know, that makes all the plants grow.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and and this what, what your point is, does remind me a lot of my family. And, that because there's just a basicness to it it's just it, what you're describing are kind of base foods that are just out there but as you describe they're delicious apples and and rye bread good rye bread my god is that great and 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 you know the the carrots and the cheese and the stuff that's in your article but like i said my parents i remember when dandelions would come up the first greens and the asparagus would come in and they would go and get those in the ramps and then they'd go get the fish from the lake and they'd go get and and the wild rice and they'd go get this the, the 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 you know, in in fall they'd go get the ducks and the deer maybe even if, if they're out in the western part of the state some pheasant and and they would have these things and they're just base things but they are there because minnesota's minnesota and yes. because of all of that it's it's not you're not making some sort of 40 ingredient recipe it's just the base stuff but that's what is that's what minnesota northern cuisine as you is your article says what's northern food that's what it is. It's just these great base ingredients which individually can stand on their own, work sometimes when you combine them with other things, but they are they're just things that as like I said, you know, people used to pull, you know, my family just pull carrots out of the gar- garden. There you go, you're having a carrot. You know, it, it's nothing. It doesn't necessarily have to be fancy to be a great example of what the food of the area is.
1: Absolutely. And every single thing that you just listed, I could talk about for one hour. Right. <laughs> I mean, Walleye are exactly, walleye are a perfect northern food. Yeah. And if, you know, if we were near Paris, walleye would be the greatest delicacy in the French kitchens. But because they're far away from us, uh, they don't, you know, the, the, there isn't this fancy cuisine built up around them. And I would say also that you know, these elemental foods. So venison, Oh, how I love it. Um, pheasant, grouse. Um, pheasant is the food of kings, you know, like mm-hmm. that's what Louis XIV would be eating every day if he could have, um, you know, pheasants are the greatest thing. Venison, they're, all of England and, uh, you know, Scotland, like was or riddled with rules about how all the deer belonged to the nobility mm-hmm. and the peasants couldn't have them and this that, and the other thing because that stuff is delicious, and everyone wants it and there's a lot of um prestige there but those those things that we think of as like French food German food you know these these uh fancy foods they really rely on those those extremely basic ingredients so like a really good duck um mm-hmm simply roasted is like there's nothing better a pheasant just dressed with salt and pepper and you know roasted over wood like there is nothing better that's a cuisine and we can kind of start zeroing in on these things like duck I feel like you know if I had room in that story to talk more about how wonderful duck is you know, wild duck, farmyard duck, all Minnesota duck is so great because it gets that insanely fatty layer because it's – get the ducks are getting ready for winter.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, how about corn? And, and, and your point about the north is, is so good because, you know, trees as you go further north don't grow as other things because they have to deal with that winter. And it just seems like the corn you get in Minnesota is, is this this – sharp, you bite into it as an ear of boiled corn and it just pops because it's just so it's so tight. I don't know if that's obviously we do have the warm summers, but it's the kernels are so tight and delicious and sweet. And it is something that and hey, I've had great corn in Iowa. I don't think it's as good as the corn you get in Minnesota. I just it seems like the further north you go, the more delicate it gets and the more delicious it gets.
1: All right. So two things that come to mind. One is that I think that if you are experiencing the greatness of sweet corn in Minnesota, (laughs) uh, thank a really skilled farmer. Uh, And the farmers of Minnesota know how to do this for generations and are better at it. But we have something called uh, I'm going to bring in a wine term. Have you ever heard the phrase hang time? Um, so hang time is the amount of time that a you know wine grape spends just like hanging out in the sunshine. And people say, like it's a truism in wine, that the longer daylight you have, the more hang time you have, the sweeter, the the more developed flavors you get in the stuff that's hanging out there. So that's why Oregon Pinot Noir is so wonderful and expensive. And that's why... You know, the the French wine regions that are the most expensive are those northern French regions. You know, uh, Bordeaux is basically uh, driving distance to to the Netherlands. You know, it's up on the on the northern part of everything. Um, And so because it has longer daylight, those longer days. I mean, think about what a Minnesota June, Minnesota July, how long those days are. It's Mm -hmm. light till what time? 10 o'clock at night most of the time. Uh,
0: 930. Yeah, sure.
1: Yeah, and so that's you know what are what's a what think about the perspective of you're an ear of corn, right? <laughs> so you're just you're standing out of the field. The sun comes up at what six thirty. It's still going at nine thirty. You're just sitting out there developing all of your delif- delicious uh, flavor flavonoids and stuff.
0: <laughs> uh, we got to take a break, but when I come back, I want to actually talk about something you repeatedly say in this. This is not a story about climate change. But you do bring up the point that if we start losing this winter, do we start losing the identity? And I want to talk a little bit about that and then also talk a little bit about – as you talk about skilled farmers. uh, Yeah, we do have a lot to thank for the skilled farmers because I think the way that agriculture has changed too has has – dramatically it, 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 there is a danger there too of us losing those those crops which are you know kind of what we're known for because of mass production I'll talk a little bit about that when we do come back uh, Dara Moskowitz Grumdahl f- now you know why I'm a fan of hers she's uh, she's brilliant uh, from MSP Magazine Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine talking about her article What is Northern Food we'll take a break come on back it's the Matt McNeil show right here on AM 950 AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. Dara Moskowitz, Grumdahl, is kind enough to join us from Minneapolis-St. Paul Magazine, one of the great food writers over there, talking about her fantastic article, What is Northern Food? And, uh, Dara, one of the things that you repeatedly say here in this article is that you're not here to, you know, basically write about climate change. But you do put out a big warning flag that if winter is to change... Here, if we are to have less winter, are we damaging the the cuisine of the north? Are we damaging the, the the northern foods that we we all love because they need that long winter to basically you know be created in the right way? You
1: no, know, this is something. I guess it was a metaphor because I don't know how to talk about this very well. It is you know, it's a, it's a tragedy that we are sleepwalking into. And I'm not sure that we in Minnesota have an ability to control it, but, you know, here's some of the things that are happening. Walleye need ice. You know, mm-hmm. they need cold water. That's what they require. We now have uh, two weeks, almost two weeks less of ice than we had a you know, a couple of years ago and we all know not a couple of years ago, you know, your grandparents 50 years ago, we have two weeks less ice than they had. And we all see it happening around us. You know, we didn't have so many ice houses crashing through the ice. We didn't have so many winter events, you know, kind of fragile and canceled. Like we know this is happening. Um, maple, maple syrup, it mm-hmm. comes because you have, you know, sub-zero nights and above freezing days. Um, a lot of the invasive pests that we have are able to live here because we don't have uh, what we used to have, which is a couple of, you know, minus 50 degree days in the winter. Uh, you know, old timers will tell you there used to be a couple of days every year where it would be minus 50 during the day in January. Without that, we have these invasive pests that are able to survive the same way that they could in, you know, I don't know, Oklahoma, something like that. So we are uh, changing, you know, it's not my whole lifetime. People just want to fight about whether it's happening or not. And I don't um, I kind of maybe aged out of that. I find it so counterproductive. I don't want. I feel like a lot of times with climate change, we're all a bunch of people standing around a hospital bed of a beloved, you know, parent or something. And there's always like, if you have a dozen kids, then one of them's like, everything's going to be fine. Like, and then they get mad at you for saying like, nope, we got a we got a worse diagnosis than that. Um, And, you know, so we're just always in these different stages of like anger and denial and grief. And some of this we can't do anything about, you know, unless China gets on board and stops burning coal, like we're kind of being shoved down this road that we don't have any any choice about. With all of that, which is a horrible thing to say and experience, and I you know, will always say, like I was born in the year 1970 and we had twice as many birds in North America the day that I was born as we have now. Like we're experiencing a... Uh, bird holocaust and we're just kind of oblivious you know and that some birds are doing better than others and those are basically the ones that we eat like god bless turkey hunters god bless ducks unlimited god bless pheasants unlimited they have done more to preserve birds in our time than anybody and i do mean anybody like Mm -hmm. every hippie in the world has not done what pheasants unlimited has done
0: no and th- um, and and you're exactly right and the, these they're the ones that have been kind of sending out the warnings that, that when they they keep track of these birds and they were some of the earliest groups that were saying these numbers are dropping way too
1: fast. Yeah, they are dropping way too fast and it's uh you know everybody in the world is like wants a fight about trans rights or whatever and like god bless uh anybody who has gender dysphoria and how they deal with it or whatever but it's like you know what's the real crisis is that we are taking our inheritance which was you know outlined in genesis and everywhere else Mm -hmm. like everything that we inherited and we are just spending it we are spending all the chickadees we are spending all the cardinals like who is going to pay attention? Okay. So it's that's like super hard to talk about. No one wants to talk about it. You want to talk about pie? You want to talk about apples? Well, uh, you know, here's a thing. If you don't, here's how trees work. <laughs> trees need bioavailable nitrogen, right? Um, bioavailable nitrogen comes largely in the forest from bird poop. Like that's, you know, you go to the hardware store, you buy a big bag of guano, like, you know that that's the good stuff. That's what plants want. Well, that's what trees want too. And they want it from the birds that they evolved with, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's like the, the, our great Northern forests are, you know, producing all the oxygen that we need to breathe. Like, this is a thing that I never can get anybody to take seriously. Mm -hmm. If you're breathing right now. Thank four trees. You know? <laughs> <laughs> <So> it's, like, <laughs> it's a serious thing. Like, well, we-
0: and, and, and if I can, if I maybe step in, welcome to Matt's doom and gloom to our experience every day. We talk about this all the time. And I mean, I've talked about the fact that in my lifetime, I'm 68. I was born in 68. The moose. There are hardly any moose left up in northern Minnesota. Those have disappeared. We used to, they used to hunt for moose all the time. As a matter of fact, there's a on our cabin from like 1930. There's a, a, a moose there that was just right off the cabin. You know, is there? But we haven't seen a moose there forty years, fifty years. High bush cranberry. My dad used to take us out to these bogs in northern Minnesota and say, "Go in there and go pick the high bush cranberries." Just a delightful experience as a kid. I was not scarred. Needless to say. There are a lot of places where the high bush cranberries—they're just not there anymore. They're gone, and these are changing. This is changing in front of our eyes, and yet it's kind of one of those things be, that that there is a an intentional blithe ignorance about the whole thing. But at the same time, it is the, as as your article points out. If this changes much more, the consequences to what we've got here—we're going to lose our identity
1: we're going to lose our identity and we should value what we have right now, like really value it. You know, I feel like we have a, a, a culture of not appreciating what's around us until we get kicked out of the garden of Eden. Right. And this is the garden of Eden and maybe more like what you were born into with a high bush cranberries was the garden of Eden. But it's like, we need to, um, have some kind, I always say that I am the true conservative because I would like to conserve some of these things so that we have them. And I will say if anybody who feels like this is Matt's doom and gloom hour and now Dara's a doom pixie <laughs> with the, on the side here, um, it doesn't, the most important thing that I've learned over the last five years was by reading Jane Goodall's book Hope and she just goes over like nature will bounce back if you let it. Like For old-growth forests, like we don't have them, but we can just, you know, move the line out five feet and then move it out five feet again. And eventually that will be old-growth forest. Um, You know, the bison will come back if you give them space to do it. The prairie chickens will come back Mm -hmm. if we give them space to come back. I mean, so it's like every nature is its own self-replicating, beautiful, magical, amazing thing. And if we get our act together... It will come back from whatever little space that we give it. You know how it is. You know, you clear a little black area in the yard and then, you know, stuff starts growing in it. That's Mm -hmm. nature.
0: Mm -hmm. And and I look at it for – I've got three kids. I want them to – and I want to have grandkids hopefully someday. I want there to be a world for them to enjoy that's somewhat similar to here without us – you know, people begging us to pump water out of the Lake Superior and stuff like that. I mean, we can go down that whole path.
1: One thing oh, I did I hate that whole oh, thing. It's I so evil.
0: Why are you in the desert? You're in the desert. Didn't you see when, yes. when you didn't see any trees? Was that was your first clue. All right. So And you're
1: trying to have a golf course. I'm exactly. sorry that you idolize Scotland and you live in uh Phoenix. It just <laughs> just stop. Get exactly. your head in a more reasonable place.
0: <laughs> exactly. So one one thing I wanted to ask you about. Is that I mean? I think one of the things that you you kind of allude to this, and you don't talk about this necessarily within the article, but the the way that we've changed agriculture dramatically, especially over the last forty years, and the way that you know we've we will take a crop that that is used in whether ethanol or just mass produced you know chips or something like this, and it can become a cash cow cra- uh, crop that they basically can genetically alter so it grows better in Minnesota, and so all of a sudden it becomes the more desired crop or a wheat crop like this. Do you feel as if part of the Minnesota food identity has been lost because we don't have nearly as many kind of unique farmers that would you know have a much more robust and diverse growing you know uh, you know product that 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 the the amount of food that we're growing is is getting more and more narrowed outside of these kind of specialized farmers?
1: Great question. I could talk about this also for another two hours. So. Mm-hmm. I think there's a couple of crises happening. One of them is that we should not be letting hedge funds buy farmland. I think that this is a, a absolute crisis in the countryside. Like we need to have young farmers able to buy farms. Every young farmer that can't buy a farm is a black mark against the state of Minnesota. Like we need to be creating spaces for people to live in rural areas and be farmers and care for the land. Like the fact that, you know, these hedge funds are buying up land and then they want, you know, it plowed edge to edge. Like this is bad. This is bad for the planet. It's bad for our food culture. It's bad for the birds. It's bad for our children. It will be bad for our health, like across the board. We should stop that right now. Okay, so that's, you know, I I just I just my 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 adrenaline now is just pumping because it Mm. makes me so afraid and we are just sleepwalking into this disaster. Okay, so that's one thing. But another problem with Minnesota food culture and what we what we stand to lose is that we haven't identified Minnesota food culture as a valuable thing and we don't even know what's in it. And so that's why my article is sort of a a place to start. Like if I could, you know, wave my magic wand, first of all, I would have every Minnesotan kid take home ec so that they know how to cook food for themselves, right? That that would just be a basic. I, I think that you should not have 18 year olds going out into the world who don't know how to provide for themselves when the chips are down. And they would know how to make some, you know, basic Minnesota foods, which would include bread. Mm-hmm. you know, like uh, I really think that. Um, and then I would also then found a Minnesota Foods Appreciation Society and every Minnesotan would have to spend like 15 minutes a year going, you know, what's great rhubarb pie. Uh, why is rhubarb pie so great? Like, okay. So rhubarb is another thing. It needs the winter. Yes. It comes up in the spring. It makes us feel appreciate life like you have to learn how to make pastry crust if you have a rhubarb <laughs> plant and five bucks worth of flour and butter like you could you know eat pie for a month that's you know that's a thing that i would put in the minnesota food canon and then i would put you know other ones what's the like sweet corn is absolutely the greatest you know what else is the greatest eating sweet corn at the state fair or at another place where you're in public with other people and celebrating your community. Like what's better than a sweet corn feed? Mm -hmm. Nothing. And so I would, you know, love for everybody to just start building a canon of these Minnesota foods and appreciate them because you can't, you can't make efforts to not lose something if you don't know what it is. Does that make sense?
0: No, it makes tremendous amount of sense. And I think that there is a tendency to say well that's you know we're not being inclusive and i think the reality is is as as your article points out these are the foods of the area this is what was here that's not you know disrespecting anyone else we're just talking about the foods that were here and you bring in the the, the native american foods that they they brought in this is what was here and if we don't appreciate what's here and we just change everything to everything else. It's 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 lost. And I couldn't agree with that more. I think that there is a great am- amount of pride I take in feeding my kids as a Minnesotan would. And I, I, I think that and and it's gone with them as you as as you said. They all know how to cook. And I think that that is that they know how to cook. And I hope that they do appreciate rhubarb when it comes up. And they do appreciate a good walleye and wild rice that is you know made perfectly. I I, I think these are things which every kid should appreciate.
1: I do. And I also think as the inclusivity conversation is like, you know, no one lives in Minnesota because you're forced to, right? (laughs) You (laughs) live here because you want to, you like to. And generations of Hmong farmers, like – they are part of the local flavor, and they also eat the things that are that require winter. You know, like if a, a, min, a like a Hmong farmer who chooses to be in Minnesota likes it here. You don't, you know, push them out of the conversation because they don't have you know, some blood quantum going back a mm. thousand generations, exactly. like. Uh, you live here and you you choose to live here. Like the Hmong Diaspora is here because they like it and they are our friends and we live here together and we have a Minnesota food together. <laughs> like <laughs> that's what we do.
0: And they and, and frankly they they they've made some fantastic ways to cook it because I think that's one of the best things about this town is the diversity cool. of flavors that we have right now.
1: Oh, yeah, exactly. Like Minnesota is pork country, right? Because that's another, you know, pigs can live outdoors all year round. Like they don't need a heated barn. They just need a big pile of hay, uh, you know, and, and then they will just burrow under the hay and then they will just be little hay mounds, you know, when it's super cold. Like pigs don't need heat. Um, not in Minnesota. They don't. And that's why we are, you know, the land of Hormel. Um, and that's why we have, a, you know, you go to Kramarchuk. this great Ukrainian heritage, Butcher in Northeast, and they make Hmong sausage. You know mm-hmm. now because Hmong people love pork sausage, and Ukrainians love pork sausage, and the people of Hormel love pork sausage, and like that's what we do here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, Dara, I wish we could. You and I, I'm having you back. If if you would like lo- like to, I would love to have I you back. Love to. uh y- You are just brilliant. You're a fantastic writer. Go get a subscription to Minneapolis St. Paul. Uh, Read her articles. They are fantastic. Find What is Northern Food. That is one of the better articles you'll find about food I've read in 10 years. It is absolutely fantastic. Dara Moskowitz, Grumdahl. Dara, once again, anytime you want to come back, thank you very much. I appreciate the time.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate being on.
0: We'll take a break. Come on back. Wrap up the show when we do return. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950.